maybe it's a good thing that the video doesn't work because there was going to be a video that has supermodel Cameron Russell on the screen. And she basically talks about how image is powerful. And so maybe it's a good thing that you don't look at me after you look at her. <laughs> but, you know, people who would say that, thank you, my husband. <laughs> people who um, would actually advise me not to do something like that would be marketers, fact marketing experts prey on the insecurities and the vulnerabilities of men and women to advertise brands and to try to sell products. And in fact, I've heard, and I don't know if you've heard the controversy, that in 2012-ish, there was a company, marketing company named PhD, that basically found in their studies that women feel most insecure about their looks on Monday morning. And so then what did they do? They advised beauty products and companies to actually blitz advertise on Monday morning, which is a terrible thing. But that happens all the time and we're not even aware of it. Or we are aware of it, but we embrace it or we just say, well, that's just how it is. And we can discuss this later, but because of marketing, media, and a host of other causes which we can talk about, we've come to the point that as a society, body image has become one of the greatest concerns. And it has infiltrated our everyday life to such a point that some studies and research have shown that here in Australia, girls between the ages of 15 and 19, they would list body image as one of their top three concerns. Unless you think that, you know, outer appearance and the idea of being attractive is something that only girls have to face, actually increasingly so today, young boys and men are facing the same pressure to look a certain way. In the Journal of Pediatrics, they have found that boys, this is in America, in middle school and high school, they surveyed about 4,000 of them. And they found that 40% of these young boys were lifting weights, not because they want to be healthy and fit, but because they want to look a certain way. And they want to be attractive, and they want to be popular, and they want the girls to like them. And so they go out, and a lot of them are taking steroids or you know, taking supplements because it has become <coughs> such a big part of their lifestyle, of the relationships, the dynamics of their social life, and of course it affects their self-esteem, which affects how they perform academically and how they feel about others, and it just kind of escalates. And sadly, one of the many negative effects of this focus on outer appearance is eating disorders, low self-esteem, depression, etc. Eating Disorders Victoria has reported that at the end of 2012, eating disorder has affected nearly one million Australians. That is a lot of people. And even real, or maybe I should say insincerely real, <laughs> attempts to relay a message of inner beauty have inadvertently or subtly actually focused still on the outside and the importance of physical looks. For example, and the title of my sermon would have been on the screen, called Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if you guys have all seen the Disney version, yes? Yep. Well, when I studied French literature at uni, one of the projects we had to do for our junior papers was to take something that we're interested in and you know, research it and write this thing. And I was really interested in the story of the Beauty and the Beast. Did you know that it was actually a French novel written in 1740? And then that novel got adapted into a British pedagogical like moral story and then later became Disney. <laughs> but if you look at every one of those stories and how it has evolved, it really relates a lot to how we as a society feel about beauty and the kind of message that we are hoping to pass on to the next generation. And, you know, if someone were to say, well, isn't Beauty and the Beast about focusing on the inside and about the, you know, inner person? And I would like to say yes, except if you really analyze the story, 
What happens to the beast after she says, I love you? He becomes this handsome <laughs> prince. And Disney just lets you know that it'll all be okay, right? Because the beast actually is a handsome guy. And let's be real, not just handsome, ladies. He owns a palace, okay? <laughs> so this is a wealthy man. And that's the other side, is that in, in addition to beauty, I'm not speaking to just women here, we've got men having that pressure to look a certain way and be attractive. And part of that for men also is the idea of wealth and, and rank and having something that is attractive um, to others as well, that way. So you've got Beast who owns a palace. I mean, come on, where did that beautiful yellow dress you know, come from for Belle? You know, she's being lavishly provided for, beautiful dresses, you know, all this wonderful food, dishes dancing in the air, how could she not fall for it, right? So even the story like Beauty and the Beast that's supposed to be about focusing on inside ends up letting us know that in the end, beautiful Belle and handsome Prince live happily ever after in a wonderful, huge palace. So does that mean that caring about looks is wrong? Does that mean we should not focus on the outside at all? How does the Bible portray beauty, and what is the Christian worldview? And I would actually advocate today that they're not necessarily the same thing. Because you've got some Christians who would say, you know what, our looks, not important. In, in fact, it's so not important that we should all wear the same things, and this is the standard, here it is, and you have to dress this way. And one extreme case of that would be the Amish who have a certain way that they want to dress themselves, and it hasn't changed for hundreds of years. And then on the other side, you have some Christians who would say, no, we have to be as beautiful on the outside as we are on the inside. We have to reflect Christian excellence. And so they then advocate looking extra nice. And some have even gone so far as to say, plastic surgery, go for it, so that we can be beautiful prince and princesses of the kingdom. So, okay, here are the extremes, but how do we know where to find the balance? I said that these are some of the Christian worldviews, but what is the Christ-centered worldview? What does the Bible say about the outer appearance? So we're going to look at a few Bible verses together to try to look at what the original meaning was, not how we look at it today from our own eyes, but what the Bible actually says about them. And so let's go to the first one, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. I remember this verse was on a bookmark as a little girl given to me, you know, stuck in my little book, pink Bible. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 30. This whole chapter is very well known. In fact, this chapter, it's an acrostic poem. So you know how, like on Mother's Day, you'll have, Mother, M, makes me feel happy, and O is for outstanding, you know, acrostic poem. And so this whole chapter is actually the whole Hebrew alphabet, and each line is going through different elements, we get towards the end of that chapter, and this is what it says in chapter 31, verse 30. It says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Sounds simple enough, right? Charm is deceitful, three points. Two, beauty is passing. Three, a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. But as much as we can you know, recite this on Mother's Day and actually in Jewish tradition, the husband memorizes and recites this poem to his wife every Sabbath. In addition to uplifting this chapter as, as a description of the ideal woman, it's actually in the context, in the literary context, a summary of the whole book of Proverbs. And if you've ever read the book of Proverbs before, the book is about wisdom. It's about gaining wisdom. And throughout the book, wisdom is actually personified as a woman. 
just to give you an example, if you look at the very beginning in Proverbs chapter 1 and 2, I'll just read a few verses to give you examples. Verse, chapter 1, verse 20, Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares, and she cries out. If you skip down to chapter 2, it says, Cry out for discernment. Seek her as silver. Search for her as a hidden treasure. So throughout the whole book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. And so it's appropriate that at the end of the book, in chapter 31, when the mother of King Lemuel is speaking, and she says, who can find a virtuous wife? It's translated, but in the original wife and woman, it's the same Hebrew word. So who can find a virtuous woman? And it's going on to describe the characteristics of wisdom that has been shared throughout the whole book. And it talks about how charm and beauty, like riches, can vanish and disappear, that they do not last, and that what lasts is the fear of the Lord. And you'll see that refrain throughout the whole book of Proverbs. The beginning of the wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is what matters. And this word charm here, another word for it is favor or grace. Throughout the books of the Bible, it'll say, you know, he found favor in God's eyes or she found favor in his eyes. And so it's that same word there. And honestly, that word favor, favor can come and go. You know, one day someone's going to say, oh, that person's so funny. Man, I really like that person. And the next time around, if they're not as witty or they're not as funny or they're a little grumpy, you know, oh, uh, never mind. <laughs> I don't like that person, right? Favor comes and goes because our hearts are fickle. And it's that kind of charm, that kind of favor that the Bible is saying. It's deceitful. It disappoints. It doesn't last. And I don't know about you, but it's exhausting to have to be funny and, and likable and personable all the time. I can't keep it up. And when it says beauty doesn't last, it's talking about the outward what the standard of beauty is in that culture as well, that, that no one can look a certain way forever, right? We're all going to have our bad days and good days, and that standard that culture has set, that impossible standard, we cannot reach. And so this verse is really reiterating what's important is the fear of the Lord. What's important is actually looking at what is important to God. It's very ironic, actually, in verse 21, it says, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. And there is this irony that this woman, or you can say wisdom, is not afraid because she fears the Lord. Wisdom is the beginning. The beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord. And when you fear the Lord and what he has to think, what he has to say, what other people think of you, what other people say, becomes less and less important. The irony is that we seek so much the attention and the approval of others and we are hoping that that would satisfy and that would minister to our heart longing. But the irony is that the more we actually focus on God and what he thinks of us, and if you are wondering what does God think of us, you can go online and listen to my sermon from last month called Fully Known and Fully Loved. And it just reiterates how God absolutely loves us as we are. And if we were to focus and find our security in that, then our fear of what other people might think of us becomes less and less important to the point that we actually can be that person that we always want to be and be content in who we are. Let's look at the next one. First Peter, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And just to give you a little disclaimer, this verse is in the context of a greater discourse about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And Roy, on April 12th, is going to be talking about the paradox of submission versus freedom. And so don't be distracted by... The verses surrounding what I'm going to read, we're going to get to that. But for now, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And this is what it says. 
It says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, before you start jumping to conclusions and saying, wait, is this verse saying that a gentle and quiet spirit, a soft-spoken and delicate like a butterfly, is the most you know, is the essence of femininity that God desires? Let me actually show you what the Greek words of gentle and of quiet actually are saying. The Greek word for gentle there, talking about you know, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, is used in another text describing someone else. Do you know who that is? What other time in the Bible is someone described as gentle? Or meek is another translation of it. And Jesus, yep. Jesus says of himself, describing himself in Matthew 11, 29, and says, he says, I am gentle or meek and lonely of heart. So this isn't something that is just a soft-spoken, you know, mouse in the corner type of beauty that the Bible is saying to cultivate. It's talking about being Christ-like in character, that meek humility, and when it talks about the quietness, it's not talking about just, you know, not speaking out loud, that kind of quietness. But the same Greek word is used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, when it says to pray for kings and those in authority, that we may lead a quiet, peaceful life in godliness and honesty. And so the intent of that word is actually nonviolence. And so going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, when it says, do not let your dormant be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. It's talking about cultivating that inward person that is Christ-like in humility, in meekness, in nonviolence, right? a heart that is in a relationship with God. Also, the word adornment there, um, that's found in verse 3, don't adorn. And by the way, you can also look this up. Whenever you study the Bible, don't just take it at face value because you know, a lot of these translations were written hundreds of years ago when the words had different meaning than you know, we have today. And you can very simply go online to blueletterbible.com and look up any verse you want, click on the verse you know, link tools, and it shows you all the Greek words that each of those English uh, words are translated from. And you can click on each of those Greek words, and it'll tell you all the other times in the Bible that that word is used, which helps you understand, ah, this is what that word meant in that time, and then apply it to today. Okay? So if you go back and do that for that word adornment, the word is cosmos. Now, what word does that sound like? That's true. It does sound like cosmetic. <laughs> I didn't think about that one. Cosmic, it has to do with universe, right? The world is usually how it's translated. And so some of the meaning behind cosmos is putting into order. And maybe that's where cosmetic came from. I'll have to look at the original etymology of cosmetics. But it's about putting to order the universe, the world. Okay? And so when it talks about don't, you know, going back to the verse, if we could kind of paraphrase it, it would be don't put in order and, and spend all that time, energy, and money focusing on the outward, right? Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on. Rather, let it be of the hidden heart. So arrange your character. Put to order the things in your heart so that you can be like Christ, meek, humble, peaceful, nonviolent, right? And we could go on and on about that. But at the end of this verse, it says, this 
inward character is very precious in the sight of God. Costly, it says, in the sight of God. If you were here for the sermon that was preached on Judges 19, we talked about how it's so important not to look through our own eyes or other people's eyes, but to look through God's eyes. Do you remember that? And that theme is throughout the whole scripture, the importance of looking through God's eyes. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And this is when Samuel has been sent by God to anoint the next king because Saul has clearly gone his own way and is hurting a lot of people, including himself. Samuel goes to anoint the new person, and he doesn't know who it's going to be. And so God simply tells Samuel, go to this person's house and anoint the next king. I'll tell you what to do. So we'll pick up in verse 6, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. The sons of Jesse are being presented before Samuel. And so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And verse 7 is the key here. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the key. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, for decades, social scientists have studied what's referred to as the height premium. Have you heard of this? The height premium is the increased earnings that, on average, taller people receive. A 2004 study by psychologist Timothy A. Judge and researcher Daniel M. Cable found that every inch of height amounts to a salary increase of about $780 a year. That means someone who is six foot tall earns about $5,525 more annually than someone who is five foot six. And we could talk about the theories as to why that is so. But I think one of the reasons could be that man looks at the outward. You know, someone who's tall looks somehow like that person has more presence or can do more or is more capable. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Turn to James chapter 2. The Bible warns against this tendency to look at the outward appearance. James chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 4. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come also a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. You see, in the Roman society at that time, there were three classes of socioeconomic rank. The first was the senatorial class. If you were a senator, or you belonged to a family of a senator, then you were in that class. And it's not just the political class. You are wealthy. In order to be a senator, you had to prove that you had property worth one million decios or something like that. And I was looking up, well, what is that equivalent to today? And the closest thing I could find was that it's worth a soldier would earn 1,000 sesterces a year. So you would have to have 1 million to be a senator. So you can imagine that's a lot of money. Secondary to the senatorial class was the equestrian class. And the basis for this class was economic instead of uh, political. If you could prove that you possessed a stable minimum property of 400,000 sesterces, then you and your family could be equestrian. And then you've got the third class, which is the lower class. And of that, you've got you know, freedmen and the commons and, the, you know, slaves. There's a whole range of people. 
And what happened in that society was that the senators and the equestrian class members, it wasn't enough to just be in that class. You had to show that you were in that class. You had to get recognition for being in that class. And so what are some of the things they would do? Well, they would show for their dress. So normally you would have a toga, but if you're part of the senatorial class, you would have a stripe on your toga. You would have maybe a gold ring. You would maybe have colorful shoes. And if you're part of the equestrian class, you might have an extra hem around the edge of your toga. And so immediately, someone by just looking at you could tell where you were in the social ranking. And so when James says, look, if someone walks in and they're wearing nice clothes, it immediately isn't just about looks anymore, it's also about their status. Right? And he says, and if you show partiality and treat that person better or differently than someone else who's dressed in a different way, which shows that they're in a different class, then James is saying, shame on us. And it's not just a problem that happened in his day. How many times have we judged people based on what they're wearing? Don't we immediately make assumptions about who they are, what they do, what they're like? because of the way that they're dressed. So James is actually talking to us when he says, don't treat people by looking at our own eyes or society's eyes. He says, look with God's eyes. In the Forbes article, What Your Clothes Say About You, clinical psychologist Dr. Jennifer Baumgartner wrote about how there's a psychology of dress. And she notes how on the Real Housewives TV series, people use logos and designers as a way to put each other down. They're using clothes and accessories as weapons against each other and making classist remarks to each other. And if you think about it today, even in subtle ways, we continue to promote this idea that clothing and wealth and beauty, that you are higher on in the totem pole of value. I mean, even with medical students, I remember my sister was a medical student. You know, she would have those white coats on that would reach to about here. And then once she became, you know, intern resident, started getting lower and lower. And, and now she's a full-fledged, you know, pediatrician. It comes down to her knees. And I was like, what's up with that? And she's like, it just lets everybody know exactly where you stand in the hospital, right? Just by looking. You know, someone would know, oh, just a medical student, right? So even today, you know, whether it's designer clothes, whether it's certain outfits, we are using clothing, outer appearance, as a way of assigning value to ourselves and to each other because we judge and see with our own eyes. In the NIV application commentary, it says, there's a challenge. It says, money is not inherently evil, of course, but if it is used as a measure of personal worth, either consciously or unconsciously, then we have fallen prey to the standards of our own culture. In ways subtle and obvious, we do crave status and wealth. We are also overly impressed by other markers of social standing, such as attire, profession, and even social polish. James would warn us against the subtle power these culture markets may have over the Christian community. In other words, it's saying, resist. The truth is we all care because we've been born and bred in this culture where outer uh, looks matter. But the Bible is actually challenging us to resist that temptation, to follow the status quo, and to place value on the inward person. So does this mean then that it doesn't matter how we look? Does this mean that we shouldn't really care about the outside at all? Let's look at one final passage that will help us kind of get practical principles about the outside. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. And once again, I'm going to preface by saying, when we read the Bible, we have to make sure that we are consistent in how we apply our understanding and interpretation. And starting from 
verse 8 onwards, there's a lot of words there that a lot of Christians have misread and misrepresented for a very long time. For example, I'm just going to point this out now, although this isn't necessarily tied in, but in 11 it says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. That verse is taken out of context and taken literally. But if you're going to do that, then at least be consistent. And in verse 8, it says, I desire therefore men to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. So if you're going to have say that women should be silent, then at least pray lifting up your hands, right? And, you know, we laugh, but a lot of times we do this inconsistent interpretation of the Bible. Where we take one thing and say, well, that's literal. We take another thing and say, well, that's figurative or that's cultural. But I, I want to challenge us to look at a passage as a whole in the right context, take the principle and apply it. And so we're going to do that with verse, verse 9. It says, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So let's analyze this verse a little bit. What does it mean? What does it mean that women should adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing? We want to bring out principles we can apply practically today. So let's look at that word. We've already looked at the word adorn. Do you remember what that word came from, the Greek? Cosmos. Thank you. Okay. So it's, again, ordering. Uh, ordering. Is that a word? Putting to order. There you go. Uh, putting to order. Let's look at that word modest. Where do we get that word modest? The original Greek word that's used there for modest is actually a derivation of the word cosmos. It's actually kosmios, okay, kosmios. And it's basically like the adjective version. So it's like saying well-ordered, okay, well-arranged, harmonious, appropriate. And it's interesting because when you look at that word used just a chapter later, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's a description of what a bishop or an elder should be like. And I'm, I'm sure some of you have, have heard this before. But it just goes on to describe an elder should be this and that and that. Well, it actually says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, that the elder should be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded. And what does your Bible say for the next word after sober-minded? Okay, of good behavior. Anyone else have a different translation? Husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, and respectable. Okay, so that's another word the NIV, I think, uses respectable. That word is actually cosmios. Okay, and so if we apply that back in the chapter 2 verse, when it talks about being cos, you know, when it, here it's saying that the elders should be cosmios. I mean, it's translated respectable, of good behavior. Put it back in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when it says you should be cosmiously dressed, okay, that cosmiously is basically saying respectably, appropriately, right, dressed. Translated modest, but that, that's really what it's saying. And so we a lot, oftentimes take modesty to be about, you know, there's various tests, you know, the hallelujah test, you know, and if you do that, how much comes up, all that. But that's, that's actually not what the Bible is saying. It, that's not saying... That's the standard of modesty. The verse is actually saying appropriate, respectable. And guess what? Respectability and appropriateness changes with the time and the culture. Because what could be appropriate here will be very inappropriate in another country, right? In another culture and in another generation. And so it's important to look at that word. 
Another word that is important to look at is the word that is translated back in chapter 2 as propriety, or some places say shamefacedness. And that same Greek word is used in Hebrews chapter 28. It says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And there it's translated as reverence. But another way to put it is basically regard. So the word can be reverence, regard. Here they put shamefacedly. But it basically just means caring, having concern, being considerate for others, and being considerate to God. And the last word that is translated sober here actually can also mean self-control. Self-control, not being excessive, okay? avoiding extremes, avoiding extravagance, having self-control. So paraphrasing this verse, it's telling us that we should dress respectively, appropriately, with reverence for God, regard for others, and with self-control. If we followed those principles, not just with outer appearance, but our pursuits of wealth, our pursuits of appetite, whatever it may be, those are some pretty good principles to have in mind. And, you know, some people would say, well, give me the list. Tell me the do's and the don'ts. Isn't there a clear do and don'ts in the Bible? I think it's easy for us to make a list of do's and don'ts. But unfortunately, making that very list of do's and don'ts does the very thing that the Bible tells us not to do, which is to focus on the outside. There's a story, um, Roy and I, when we lived in Michigan, there's an Amish population there, and they have a museum. And we would go to the museum on our dates, and that's so sad. That's what we did on our dates. Um, so we would go in this you know, museum of religious history and go and, and look at, no, it's not sad. It was wonderful. It's fun. And so we're, we're there, and you know, one of the things they would do is have us like, watch the video of you know, how the Amish came to be and some of their beliefs and stuff like that. And one of the stories that they told was about this Amish father who, after you know, church service comes out, you know, they're, they're going home, and he turns to his family, and he, he says, Proudly, I believe we were the plainest dressed family there today. And, you know, this story is told to say you could be on the outside the most, you know, plainest dressed, shows that you don't care about the outside, you've checked off all the checklists of things you're not supposed to wear and not supposed to do, but inside can be pride, can be vanity, can be disregard for others, can be selfishness. And so I'm not going to give a list of do's and don'ts. I've given the principles. Right? Respect God, regard for others, and respect for yourself. I think self-control is another way of saying respect yourself. Right? Respect yourself and your boundaries. And if we follow those principles, I think it's actually a higher standard than any list we could have. Because if we allowed God through the Holy Spirit to challenge us in our self-complacency, in our insecurities, and allow the Holy Spirit to challenge us by saying, is this truly respectable to God? Is this truly considerate of others? And is this respecting yourself, your body, and who you are as a person? And if we were to really, truly allow God to have those corners of our lives that we usually keep to ourselves, I, would, I think we would find that we would actually be stricter on ourselves than any other person could be on us externally. And so... I think as we see with God's eyes 
and we quit judging each other and ourselves by our outer appearances, we will find that obsession with beauty actually becomes the beast that hurts us. When I was pregnant with Micah, besides the morning sickness and all the things I had to do with, um, one of the things that really bothered me, that surprised me actually, was how unhappy I became with how I looked. And it wasn't because of the baby bump. I didn't mind the baby bump. It was the clothes that I had to now wear. And those of you who are around you know, when I was going through that, I'm sure remember me complaining about how I hated the clothes I had to wear at the time. Because I was new to Australia and I didn't know about all the stores that actually do sell nice maternity clothes, which I didn't know about at the time, but maybe that was a good thing. But I had to go to like Mother Care and Target and they would just be like this tense. And you know, I would just think to myself, if I wear this and I'm meeting people for the first time because I was new here, I was meeting people, um, new people all the time, every week. And I would think to myself, and I almost wanted to tell them like, this isn't how I normally dress. This isn't really who I am. I caught myself really being unhappy and, and focusing on how I looked on the outside. And, you know, it, it got to the point where I was so unhappy with how I looked that I would think, well, I look like a circus anyway. Might as well, I mean, who cares about brushing my hair? Or and I just completely <laughs> let go. And I just, I just became this really, and, and of course, that unhappiness about the outward appearance affected how I felt overall about the pregnancy. And because I was focusing on the outside, I totally missed being happy and feeling blessed for the miracle of life that was happening inside. And, you know, we do the same thing today. We can focus so much on the outside, whether it's outside behavior or looks or status, wealth, rank, whatever it is, that we miss the miracle of life that happens in the heart. The miracle of life where God actually changes us so that instead of caring so much about others, we care about what God thinks. The miracle of life where instead of you know, focusing on trying to get others' approval, we just want to make God happy. The miracle of life where instead of looking through others' eyes, and constantly striving for an ideal that we cannot reach, of being content in knowing that God has provided all things for us and that actually he has provided so many blessings for which we can be happy and rejoice. And my prayer this afternoon is that we would trust Jesus' words found in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, I know you need clothing, I know you need food, and of course he's talking about the basic things, but he knows also that we worry about the excessive things or things that are not basic things but things we like and want and Jesus says I know you like those things I know you need those things and he says he doesn't condemn us he just says first do what seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you and so my prayer is that as we focus on God and on the inside hearts of who we are ourselves and others that the miracle of life would be appreciated, would be valued, would be praised, and that together we would be able to just um, change the culture, of at least here, starting here, and hopefully um, impact others as well. So that's my prayer. Thank you. I guess we were supposed to have a song, but are we having prayer? So I just decided I'll sing an acapella for you guys. <laughs> Actually, I'm not going to you guys. <laughs> if you'd like to join me for prayer, we'll close. Father God, we want to thank you for your word that's so precious and valuable that um, teaches us how to really find value and to find security. And we pray that as we 
discuss these things that you would deepen the impression that uh, that we have of you. And so uh, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.